Vine Pairs New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And I'm Joanna Sherino. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the Vine Pair Podcast. Guys. What day is it? It's Friday, first of all. <laughs> Second of all, how, are, you, are you guys getting sad yet? That you're leaving? Yeah. Yeah. I'm only, devastated. Only, only four more episodes. <laughs> oh, that's right. Oh, you're counting down. Only four more. <laughs> and I just, I, you know, I don't, I, no one's reached out to say they're going to miss me yet. I'm waiting. Well, you haven't I'm really waiting. made it well-known on this podcast. That's true. It's this is true. the first time you've mentioned, well, you mentioned it a while back, but no, no target date had been announced. Two months of no I think some people are probably celebrating that for sure. <laughs> no. We don't actively survey the audience on this. I'm terrified to know. Well, I think I strongly suspect that Joanna would be the overwhelming crowd favorite, which is fine. I'll settle False. for second place, but um, <laughs> yeah, he's for sure putting me last place. You heard that, right? <laughs> uh, well, you know. Anyways, you know what? Let's get talking about me. Uh, straight into the into the headlines. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> into the headlines. So Joanna, what 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 was the best on the site this week? What rose to the top? Well, I really enjoyed a piece by um, Olivia White, mm. our editorial assistant. It was an exploration of drinking culture in reality dating shows. I don't really like reality TV isn't isn't my thing, but I thought that this was really interesting. It's kind of a crazy world. There's a lot of like alcohol that's mm-hmm. pushed on these contestants. It's pretty exploitative, mm-hmm. um, and she did a really great job exploring this. Um, so that was one of my favorite features from the past week. Cool. Zach, what about you? I really enjoyed, even though it's like so outside of my world in a lot of ways, as I guess the reality TV one was, um, Eric Berger's piece on the Red Bull vodka. Yes. And yeah, it's so Red good. Bull's sort of, let's say, conflicted relationship to its Resistance. role. <laughs> yeah, well, I, well, but I think the thing that the piece does a good job of pointing out is that it's sort of like in the U.S. where we have particularly kind of strong laws around this kind of stuff or and or cultural kind of norms. Mm-hmm. Red Bull is much more like, uh, no, we don't really want to talk about that. But in other countries and a little more now recently, we're more willing to kind of admit that actually a lot of their market are people who are combining it with alcohol. Shocking, right? Mm-hmm. And just like an, just a thing where like, I love it when I read a piece about something like as ubiquitous and well-known to all of us as like the Red Bull vodka that you just never think about. And especially the way that the brand on the non-alc side relates to its ubiquity in drinking culture and in a specific kind or specific kinds of drinking culture, right? People who are out to like really fucking tear it up because that's what you want. <laughs> tear it up. Um, and, and I think that's just, it was just a really interesting piece and, and well-crafted and, and like I said, trying you know, shed some light on something that I just I, I'm very aware of in one sense, but had thought almost nothing about. So, yeah, that was a good one. Cool. I mean, I think mine leads really well into today's uh, topic, but I loved Aaron Goldfarb's piece on whether food has become the mm-hmm. ultimate draw at craft breweries as opposed to the beer nowadays. And I think he explores something that we have been seeing as craft beer has become less about the beer and having to taste certain beers more homogenized in a way, right? Like everyone's making now sort of everyone's kind of like gravitated towards the either West coast or East coast style IPAs kind of all making beers that taste very similar no matter where you go. And so 
now it's all about kind of like what else you offer to get people in your doors and become loyal to you as a brewery. And so you're seeing a lot of these breweries invest very heavily in high quality food and experiences, which, you know, Aaron says was not the case, you know, in the early aughts when like craft beer was sort of, you know, having its moment and people were willing to, as he says, like drive to the middle of nowhere to a warehouse. I mean, I remember doing this actually. Like I remember being in uh, Asheville, North Carolina with Naomi in like 2014 or 15 and like driving to an industrial center, like somewhere outside of Asheville (laughs) where like this guy, like this place, this guy apparently made like incredible beer that everyone said you had to taste and like sitting on a couch that was like clearly out of his like grandmother's basement and having nothing but as Aaron says, like potato chips that were on clips on the wall to eat. Mm-hmm. And being like, this is the greatest. Like I'm trying a <laughs> beer that's so hard to get. And Aaron had a similar experience he talks about here. And now you look at it and that's now it's massive investment in tourism centers basically for these local breweries where people expect very high quality food um and if you don't have that your your relevance in the beer world is is kind of starting to wane and like to be honest i had a very i had an experience this past weekend that very much was like that where i went to a brewery in new york that has traditionally gotten a lot of press in in bushwick uh has superheroes sometimes on its cans. <laughs> and it was a kind of disappointing experience because, like, it's just a brewery. Like, yeah. there's no food. Like, they have a menu of places you can order in from, but, like... Oh, really? It's kind of hmm. like... it's it, it, w- That used to be cool, and now it's not. Mm-hmm. And it was so interesting how we were all like, oh, this was fun, but, like, Finback's the best. Because Finback has that amazing Chinese food, dumplings, etc. Like... You know, Threes has invested heavily in food in the city. Like, Mm -hmm. those are the places people want to go now because you can, like, sit down and have a meal. Yeah. And a wild thing is, like, I know at least here there's a lot of behind-the-scenes really kind of, like, competition among breweries to get the more kind of desirable, lauded food trucks, especially on, like, your Thursday, Friday, Saturdays, because – they've become for a lot of these breweries, at least as big a draw as the beer. Like people will go to whatever brewery, the food truck they want to check out or food trucks they want to check out are at. And for a lot of these places that don't have their own kind of in-house kitchen, because that's difficult and also changes some licensing requirements and stuff like that. Really like, you know, again, nothing I can say like, you know, with a great deal of like, this is on the record, but off the record, like just giving people money to bring their food truck in a way that we would have thought that like, you know, some of these food trucks might be like, using the brewery to get in front of people it's almost the reverse in some of these cases where these food trucks have this deep following and those people will go kind of wherever they happen to be yeah Yeah. so what we are going to talk about today is also beer related and that is the sort of pulling back and maybe we might even say demise can we say demise of anchor brewing and what that sort of means for craft beer as a whole so anchor announced this week that they are going to cease all national sales. The oldest craft brewery in the United States, they're going to pull back to California and their home base of San Francisco, where they claim 70% of the sales exist anyways, and only focus on that market. What I think is amazing about this, too, is like this is not an independent craft brewery. Anchor is owned by Saboro, 
And even with the money from Japan, they are fully pulling back. And I think that that is, if I were a craft brewer who had gone national, this would start to give me lots of pause, and I would be very fearful about what that means. And I think this is the perfect um, sort of example of what is happening in craft beer right now, and that is that unless you are a major, major macro beer brand like Modelo, which just surpassed Bud Light as the, also this week as the number <laughs> one beer in the country, um, you know, with tons of marketing capital to put behind the beer and ensure that people know about you, if people are choosing craft, they are choosing local. And it makes very little sense for the majority of these breweries to go national anymore. The, the desire for the New Yorker to drink the craft brand they're drinking in California while being in New York has totally disappeared. And I think it's really only the brands that have almost completely reinvented themselves in that space, the New Belgiums, the Sierra Nevadas, who have had continued success. And if you look at what those breweries are producing and putting forward, it is functionally completely different than the beers that took them national in the first place, right? I mean, uh, New Belgium totally reworked Fat Tire. That I don't, th- I don't think has been a big success. Obviously, the Hazy Little Thing line or the Little Thing line for Sierra Nevada is driving all of their success now. And the Pale Ale that, again, got them on the radar, got them national in the first place. I mean, they still make it. You can still go buy it. But I mean, it's just not the thing that drives anyone right now. And it remains to be seen, and I'm sure we'll talk about it in the future, whether these you know kind of reinventions of these craft breweries that are succeeding will last or whether there will be a new trend and can they iterate again and be on in, at the forefront of that trend again, uh, time will tell. But I think Anchor, you know, was very staid, right? They kind of kept making the same beers and you're right. They're just not, you know, there's no, if people want to drink the craft beer that, that, that is exciting in Northern California, they'll travel to Northern California. And that part is still vital and vibrant. And I think something that you see kind of around the, around the, country, right, was we were just talking about, you know, there's still a lot of interest in checking out what's cool and what's interesting and exciting in beer in a local scene. But the desire to be able to, yeah, get that in New York or Seattle or Austin or wherever is just, yeah, I don't think it's there. Yeah. And we've been talking about this kind of in in a similar context of, you know, what the end game is for breweries these days. Is it to be acquired by these bigger conglomerates and brands? And this just kind of says to me that that's not actually that shouldn't really be the end goal for these brands because you know um dave infante wrote his most recent hop take column on this exact thing um with anchor brewing and you know they're trying to you know be a california brand again and a lot of the the loyalty i guess that they had from local Californians kind of went away over the years and they have to recapture that. And that's going to be, you know, hard for them to do as well. Um, But if they never, you know, went national, maybe they would be finding more success. Um, Dave mentions like brands, uh, what is it, like Nuglaris um, and other brands like that where they stayed hyper-local the entire time and continue to maintain that success locally. I think it's 
the, the entire sort of idea behind what's happening here is really fascinating to me in terms of how quickly this has all shifted. It feels like it's almost like turned on a dime. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember early in the years of like the Vine of Vine Pair being in existence, and we're not that old of a publication, right? Like there still being big releases in New York City bars when like a beer from another part of the country was like finally gotten to distribution here and like everyone was celebrating it. Like, oh my God, we can finally get bells. Or, oh my God, Sweetwater's now in New York. And mm-hmm. then it just switched so fast. And I'm curious as to why you guys think that happened. Besides my one the- theory, which I think is sort of the same reason that Aaron talks about the food, is that like when we were finally able to try all of these beers in the same space, we realized we're all kind of drinking the same beer just with different <laughs> brewery names on mm-hmm. it. I mean, I think that's definitely part of it. I, I just think it's so much more competitive now. And if you can get any beer you want at any time from any store, you know what I mean, or any beer bar, then, yeah, you just have so much more choice now that I feel like we didn't have back then. I think that's definitely part of it. I also think part of it is that the ethos that surrounded, like if you think back to the early days of, I don't want to call it craft beers emergence, but just this sort of like growth of non-macro lager beer in this country. So that includes craft, but also includes imports and stuff like that. And the, the kinds of places that really came around to support that demand, the beer bars, the beer shops, et cetera. Those places were really pivotal in a pre, you know, kind of ubiquity of craft beer sense because they were the place where you could go get interesting beers, right? You could get your Belgians, you could get your, you know, your German beers, your French beers, as well as some of the harder to find or just interesting craft beers that were being produced. And so much of beer culture has shifted to taproom culture now. It shifted away from beer bars. It shifted away from uh, beer shops in a lot of places. And tap rooms are not interested in carrying other people's beer. I mean, they might carry one or two other beers. Maybe they have a collaboration or something like that. But a brewery wants to sell you its beer, obviously. And with with so much of beer culture moving into those spaces, both because they were exciting, they could offer novelty. And I think a lot of cases, they were more approachable and family friendly than a beer bar or, I mean, a beer bar in many places is a 21 plus establishment. You can't bring your kids there. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they're not kind of the way that, you know, Aaron describes the place he went to in his piece is like, you know, there's like a huge turf field where kids are running around playing soccer and stuff like yeah. that. You don't have that <laughs> as a beer bar anywhere or as a beer shop anywhere. And so as people kind of wanted to continue to make beer a part of their life, but just the dark beer hall was not really a viable option for them a lot of the time. It squeezed a lot of the demand for these kinds of even really highly high quality beers. It's really interesting. I was thinking about this as we were talking. So relatively recently, like in the last few months, Russian River started distributing in Washington State again, of course, famous for a lot of things, but the Pliny the Elder and Pliny mm-hmm. uh, the Younger beers, which again, when they were first available here, uh, 12, 15 years ago, you know, it was a huge deal. There were, yeah. you know, crazy lines to get those beers. You know, the pla- few places that got a keg, it was like, you know, they sold out of it almost immediately. And I think when they came back into the market, there was some excitement. I- I'm sure it got some, you know, attention, but it just wasn't as 
monumental a moment in the Seattle beer scene as it had been. And a lot of the iconic Seattle beer bars are struggling or have shut down or have had yep. to kind of re-envision themselves. And the culture around beer has shifted so dramatically to say nothing of just less demand, seltzer, all that stuff, but just how people want to consume quality beer has changed so much over the last 15 years. I think it's really left a lot of these legacy craft brands kind of in the dust. I mean, I was thinking about like uh, this dinner I had recently with a former master brewer who is sort of, he's one of the master brewers. He's become a a good friend of Josh and mine, but um, he's one of the master brewers that is credited with like creating the haze craze. And we were asking him, like, are you interested in beer anymore? Mm -hmm. And he was like, no. And we said, why? And he said, because everyone's copying each other now. He's like, it's not not exciting anymore. He's like, when when we were creating the hazy, he was like, it was, we were one of the first breweries to do it. And so it was fun. It was science. He's a, you know, he's a former uh, biochemist. So like, he was like, it was an experiment. And it was awesome. Now everyone's basically taking like a few recipes that have been running around and just being like, okay, well, we have these proprietary hops or we have those proprietary hops. We're going to throw as many hops as possible in this thing. And he's like, it's not that interesting anymore. Or people are just trying to copy classic styles from elsewhere. Like, you know, we're all going to go into like Italian Pilsner or we're going to try to, you know, we're going to try and yeah, check Pilsner. We're going to try and do, you know, a German purity law beer. And again, you can, those already exist as what they were. And he was like, you know, the only thing that excites me in beer anymore is actually like the original stuff now that comes from Germany and Belgium. Like those are, those have history. Those have heritage. Those, you know, those have stories. And that's what's interesting. He's like, I'm not interested anymore in like a craft brewery's copy of that story. I want the original story. And, and I think that that's, the problem with something like Anchor is I don't think that Anchor, to bring it back to the the hook, mm-hmm. ever told its story to the general American consumer. And I really believe that this is the proof about what can happen in alcohol when you don't have a marketing budget and or you choose not to have a marketing budget and you don't invest in it for a very long time. And I think the other thing that has plagued craft beer forever because everyone got high on their own supply was that the growth was just so organic you don't know how many people I would have when we would have meetings with them say, we don't spend on marketing. We don't need to. We don't need to. Sure. And it's all bit them. So no one invested in telling their story. And look, I think this is also a good you know, lesson for this potential pending recession. Like what happens when you stop spending and you stop educating a consumer is the consumer finds something else. And, they, and, and someone else is going to pay to be in front of them. And whether we like marketing or we don't, it exists for a reason and has always existed. And, you know, people have very short attention spans and they pay attention to things that pay to be in front of them. And Anchor, I think the reason it's 70% of its sales are in California is because it ha- the people in California do know the Anchor story. Yeah. I guarantee you there are people listening to this podcast who are based in California who are going to email us and say, I love Anchor and I know the story. I didn't. Not until I got into, you know, this industry. My dad's a, you know, a big beer guy he never knew the anchor story i mean it says on there since 1896 what does that mean but then how are they a craft? and then and then also their language that they're but they're the original craft brewery what does that mean if they're since 1896 because there's a lot of breweries that are macro breweries in america that are also that old and they're considered macro so is it just that it's independent well now that it's owned by sapporo is it not a craft brewery like it's it's so confusing to people and they never 
ever told the story. Well, I also think that they had this, Sapporo had this great opportunity to do that. Right? And they just when did. they acquired yeah. the brand in 2017, instead they rebranded it, <laughs> which did nothing really for I mean, it. This is the most generic label I've ever seen. It looks on a like beer. Twisted Tea. <laughs> yeah, it does. That's yeah. what I Yeah, you're right. Mm-hmm. Well, this is what Dave said, and it does. It really does. Um, but yeah, they had this great opportunity. And instead of investing in that marketing, they just kind of squandered it. And now you're here years later and they have to pull back. Sales aren't doing well, right? That's a huge part of it. And they're canceling their beloved, you know, uh, Christmas sale. Right, which is like what actually well. people like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I think, look, the the best example of a brand that's craft that has done well, two of them, and we've talked about both, is Hazy Little Thing and um, Voodoo Ranger. And yes, and but let's be honest, guys. Both of them taste like other beers. They do. There are other breweries in the country making beers that taste very much like these. What is different? Both of these companies have invested heavily in reaching the consumer, in talking to the consumer, in advertising to the consumer, in massive displays in stores. And, you know, fair or not fair, that is the market that we all exist in. And that is why they are everywhere. And that is why they're – and then – and then successful. It's, right. And then it's, you know, it's everything else, but it is feeding the beast. And even the brands that say they don't spend on marketing, spend on marketing. Like, you know, we go back to the podcast I talked about a few weeks ago um, with the, the rise of PBR. Like, they were fucking spending money. They just pretended like the way they were spending money wasn't spending money. Mm-hmm. But they were spending, right? It's like that, that, that movement in fashion we heard about around succession, the, like, the quiet luxury. Like, oh, you have money, but it's a black sweatshirt, <laughs> but it's $1,000. That's basically what PBR was doing. They like, weren't spending in the traditional ways you would spend on advertising, but they were throwing music festivals. Yeah. Which are well, arguably were, like, more expensive. Having a lot of staff in various cities that were there to exactly advocate for the brand or be positioned to do things for the brand, which obviously paying someone's salary it ain't cheap, but it's a different way to, to get to the same point. I want to actually make one other note on the marketing thing, because I think it's really interesting from the perspective of, you know, talking about that attitude that craft beer as a whole has had, which is this kind of like, yeah, we don't need to market. And I think a lot of it, you know, can we have to think always have to keep in mind that so much of the ethos that surrounded and still to some extent surrounds craft beer was in opposition to outright defiance of the, you know, the big macro breweries. And I think there were a lot of people who were like, you know, Budweiser, Coors, Miller, those people advertise and we're going to be the opposite of them in every way. So we're not going to advertise. I mean, to say nothing of whether we have the money to just like sort of philosophically, we're opposed to how they do their thing. So we want to take the opposite stance wherever we can. And just the reality is where craft beer is as a much more mature industry these days, you can't really just be like, well, we're just not doing what the big boys do because the modern consumer doesn't give a shit. It's not seen as a as like you're not competing to capture market share from the macro breweries in the same way that you're competing to capture drink share from people who like to drink interesting things. Mm-hmm. And I mean, this is an ongoing conversation. I mean, in some ways, it's the macro conversation that we have on this podcast a lot, right? Which is this kind of as this space, this sort of thoughtful drinking space or, you know, kind of interesting drinking space or however we want to term it. It continues to evolve and continues to see more and more product enter it or at least compete for market share there, these various categories, you know, craft beer, wine, et cetera, that have held the space to themselves much or had much more of the space to themselves over in the past have really struggled to pivot to be like, 
oh shit, we're not fighting to take business away from the sort of behemoth Big companies yeah. that are easy to vilify. We're we're fighting against other interesting Peers. drinks and all mm-hmm. the all this stuff. And I think, you know, craft beer, again, it's hard to generalize in a sense, but certainly something like Anchor once it's especially once it was taken over by a you know multinational just like seemed to completely not recognize the the sort of market it was competing in and the space it was fighting for and you know seeded whatever space it already had by just you know just not understanding the business and again you if you read dave's piece it's shot through with these stories and again to credit him he was the one who broke this news too i think it's important that we note that Mm -hmm. he did break it yeah yeah that you know, shot through that commentary from people who had worked there, basically like, yeah, they didn't have any fucking clue what they were doing. They didn't understand the brand. They didn't understand the story. They, so they couldn't tell it and they didn't seem interested in it. So, you know, again, it kind of comes back to what did they buy the brewery for again? Mm-hmm. But that has also been a story throughout craft beer. I mean, again, you look at all the things that, you know, whether it's Constellation's kind of absolute disaster purchase of Ballast Point or some of the various AB InBev purchases, like, you know, a lot of them just kind of were like, eh, let's just grab this because we don't know. Yeah. Um, and this seems like it's, you know, similar and following a sad trajectory, kind of like a lot of those purchases were. Well, also, we're seeing a lot of them being sold back yeah. to founders now. <laughs> okay, we yeah. should drink this, right? Yeah, let's try it. Oh, I've been drinking mine. Oh. No, you haven't. I've been watching. <laughs> no, trying joking. to flex. Okay. A few sips. It's warm. <laughs> oh, that's not good. I mean, it's a fine lager. Yeah. Because it's warm, I, there's a little more hops than a normal one. Hmm. But, like, I don't know. It's very full-flavored. And I think that this is, is – it, it's actually, like, it's a it's a heavy lager, right? Isn't that their thing? Yeah. And I also think this is why it also hasn't done well. Like, they didn't educate about that either, and I don't know if consumers love that. Like, you're looking for this to be a crisp, refreshing lager, and it's, like, much more of almost like a brown ale, yeah. like a light brown ale. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's 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 one of those things where like, if you and maybe this is where the retrenchment in California makes a certain kind of sense. If this was your introduction to this kind of beer or to craft beer, like I undoubtedly was, and I'm sure some people, as you said, Adam, will write in and please do podcast at vinepair dot com and tell us like, oh, I grew up, you know, in and around this. This was my, you know, I drank this or a parent introduced me to it or something like that. You know, I have the same kind of feeling a little bit about like uh, Red Hook ESB, which was a very iconic beer. It's still made, but was an iconic beer here in the Seattle area because Red Hook was one of the first craft breweries in the area. But again, like that beer now is like several generations behind the times. And like the couple times I've drank it in the last five years, it's like a nostalgia thing, which, you know, like nostalgia is valuable and it can be a successful marketing tool in some cases, but it's just it's just never going to be as it's just a hard it's hard to to continue you know people want to revisit an old favorite from time to time but it's not going to be a thing they drink on the regular for the most part that's why it's nostalgia and not the thing they still love yeah well good luck to anchor brewing <laughs> godspeed <laughs> yeah i, mean, I hope i hope this is good for them i don't know i don't know how it could be <laughs> I, I, yeah i i think it's I think it's going to be – I think it's a bummer for them, I think. Um, yeah, I think it it is going to be really sad for a lot of people that truly love this brand. Um, but I also think that, like, kind of – this this has been coming, right? We've all, we've all known this was going to happen. So. Yeah. 
Oy. All right. Well, three more to go. Have a great weekend. Sounds great. Thanks so much for listening to the Vine Pair Podcast, the flagship podcast of the Vine Pair Podcast Network. If you love listening to this show, or even if you don't, but I really hope that you do, as much as we really do love making it, then please drop us a review or a rating wherever it is that you get your podcast, whether that be iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, anywhere. If you are listening to this on a device right now through an app, however you got this audio, please drop a review. It really helps everyone else discover the show. And now for some totally awesome credits. So the Vine Pair podcast is recorded in our New York City headquarters and in Seattle, Washington in Zach Chabal's basement. It is recorded by Zach, mastered and produced by Zach. He loves all the credit. Keep giving it to him. Drop his name in the reviews. He's going to love hearing how much you love him. It is also recorded in New York City by our tastings director, Keith Beavers, who is the managing director of the entire Vine Pair podcast network. I'd also love to give a shout out to our editor-in-chief, Joanna Sherino, who joins us on every single podcast as our third and most important host. Thank you as well to the entire VinePair staff and everyone who's been involved in making VinePair as special as it's become. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week.